We are continuing on with the Psalms, if you've been with us. And so I want to just, Martin's not here, so it's my job to make sure everything's woo-woo. So I'm going to do that real quick. If you'll just go with me, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. And I want you to take a deep breath, the kind that fills up your lungs, and take your time to exhale. And then take another one. Just relax. And now I want you to think about a person, any person that you deeply enjoy, that you deeply delight in. And I want you to think of this person, specifically, I want you to see their face in your mind. Someone you genuinely delight in, and they delight in you. And when you're near them, when you have the chance to be with them, you feel things, happy things. Take another breath. And I really want you to take note of what, if anything, is happening in your body as you think of this person. And then I want you to name this experience what that experience is when you're with that person. Give it a name. All right, open your eyes. How many of y'all name that joy or some iteration of joy? Yeah, you see this person and they delight in you. Joy is one of the most beautiful things in the whole world. And what I actually described for y'all, that moment when two people see each other's faces and you delight in each other is actually joy. That's what it is. Anybody name it something that you just want to tell me what you named it because you went totally left field? Anybody? Peace. Love. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This morning, we're going to be talking about Psalm 16. We're going to jump into Psalm 16 together. And this psalm talks a little bit about worship, a little bit about praise, and it ends with joy. And we're going to talk about that this morning and how and what it looks like when we worship God and how, hopefully, we can cultivate more joy in our lives. So Psalm 16, you can, of course, follow on the screens behind me. But this is God's word. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good beside you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. But the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me and in your presence is abundant joy. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, for preserving these psalms, they've been such a a gift to us, such a beautiful gift. And so would you allow me, as we walk through this passage together, would you allow my words to be beautiful, true, and right? Would you allow them to honor you uh, and also encourage and strengthen us, Lord? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Martin, when he first started talking about uh, the psalms, he was talking about different hand gestures. You know, you've got psalms of protest, and you've got psalms of lament. This one, I think, would be like this. Not, Not defeat, but just... This is a psalm of confidence, is what we call this. I'm just, I'm declaring to God, I have confidence in God, I have trust in God. So I think it would just be, hands out, I trust in you, God. 
And we're going to be talking about, like I said, worship, praise, and in with joy. But this psalm of confidence um, has really got multiple parts to it that are going to teach us a little bit about how we worship God in confidence. So if you're a note-taking kind, I wanted to give you guys an outline. Verses 1 through 2 is really an opening statement of faith. It starts with confidence. God in you, I trust. And then verses 3 through 4, they contrast those who also trust in God with those who don't trust in God. We hear their sorrows multiply, right? Things are not good for them. Verses 5 through 6 talk about a testimony, a blessing that God has given us good things. And then verses 7 through 8, the psalmist breaks out in praise. And then verses 9 through 11, which we're going to camp out on later, tell a whole body experience, a whole body experience of joy with God. And so the thrust of this psalm, like if you were just going to put Psalm 16 at the top and say, hey, here's the main idea of this psalm, I would say it's that the author trusts God and God alone. And because of that, he sees that God has provided a path toward life. The psalmist says, I completely trust in you. And my life is not going to go down to Sheol. I'm not going to see decay. You have provided a path of life for me. That's the main thrust of this psalm for us. And what's really beautiful is both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts quote verse 10. They say, hey, the fulfillment of this psalm, that my life will not go down to Sheol and I will not see decay, is actually found in the resurrection of Christ. Both of them say the resurrection of Christ makes verse 10 true of this psalm. So Peter at Pentecost does it, and then later Paul in Athens, both of them quote this psalm and say, see, this is how we know that we will not see decay because Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. It's really beautiful. But I think rather than just focusing on the resurrection, I want to go back into just Psalm 16 this morning, though, and say what can this psalm specifically teach us about trusting God in worship? What can Psalm 16 show us about what it means to have full confidence, to stand before God and go, I trust you. I I fully trust you, God. So the first thing that we can learn from this psalm is that trust in God requires exclusive worship. Psalm 16 starts out by teaching us trust in God requires exclusive worship of God. Our psalm actually starts with what could be seen as a plea, right? He's like, oh, save me, Lord. But most commentators actually say, no, it's more, of a, it's more of a statement of trust. I take refuge in you because you save me. So he starts off by saying, I really trust you. But then he says, hey, and there are others like me in the land. And he calls them the noble ones. There are others like me. They also trust in you, God, and they are the delight of the land. But there are others who have taken up other gods. And those folks their sorrows will multiply. He says, hey, there's two of us in the land. There are those of us who stand before God and you and you alone, God, do I trust. And there are those in the land who say, yeah, God, plus a little sprinkle of the others. And so our, our author says, look, I am so committed to God, I will not participate in those blood sacrifices and I will not even put the names of those gods on my lips. I won't even utter their name. They are so unworthy. Now, What's happening here is most scholars don't think, hey, there are those who worship Yahweh and those who completely worship a different God. Instead, what they think is happening is syncretistic worship. In other words, there are those who worship God and God alone, and there are those who worship God plus a little bit of extra gods on the side. And the reason why is they say, hey, in the grand scheme of things in the ancient Near East, Yahweh's the new kid on the block. That you've had Baal for a while, you've had Dagon for a while, you've had Marduk for a while. Those are old gods. We know what they're capable of. So yeah, Yahweh, he might have gotten you the land, but don't you need Baal for the crops? Yeah, Yahweh makes the sun rise on us, but don't you need Marduk for protection? And our psalmist is saying, "Mm, it's not how worship works. 
To trust in the God of Israel means to trust only in the God of Israel because he has told us you shall have no other gods. So he's saying it's me and me alone. Don't sprinkle in Baal. Don't sprinkle in Marduk. Don't sprinkle in Dagon. It's God and God alone. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, but that's because ancient people, they're so silly with their polytheistic ways. I mean, obviously there's one God and one God alone. I'm not sprinkling in Zeus. Like any of y'all ever get up and you're like, just in case, Jesus didn't finish it on the cross, dear Dionysus. No, none of y'all do that, right? So you're like, okay, I, I think I'm probably good, but we're not so different from ancient people. Don't we trust in other things other than God for our protection, for our provision, for our care? Yeah, we trust God, but we have this nest egg because sometimes he doesn't come through in the way that I want. And so I, I trust him, but I also trust my financial advisor quite a bit, right? I trust in these connections, these opportunities, these things I'm making for myself because to fully trust in God, that's really vulnerable. So I might not be sprinkling by all, but I might sprinkle in money, power, sex, this is what Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, is talking about. He says, yeah, we're not, most of us are not in danger of building a golden calf. But many of us are in danger of worshiping counterfeit gods, things that promise us the same thing God has promised us, to belong, to feel secure, to have a future, to be, to be whole, to be loved, to feel joy. And we have these counterfeit gods, and he names them specifically money, sex, and power. Now, look, I want to be very clear. Having a nest egg, that's wisdom. Like, don't hear me say that I, I think you shouldn't have a 401k. And having sex with your spouse, that's a gift. There are so many things here that are gifts. Having money, all of this stuff can be gift. But when you trust in it to provide for you what God is meant to provide for you. If, if we say, hey, we don't trust God to provide for St. Jude's finances, what we actually trust in is we got 15 scratch-off stickers. That's not wisdom. We didn't do that. Trust me, we did not do that. But the syncretistic worshipers mentioned in the psalm, we're not so different from that. And just like those people in the psalm who trusted in these false gods and it multiplied their sorrows, if we look to lesser gods for security or belonging or comfort, we too will experience the increase of sorrow. Because everything but God makes a crummy God. Your spouse makes a crummy God. Money makes a crummy God. Jobs make crummy gods. Everything makes a crummy God, but... God. And so Psalm 16 teaches us trusting in God is an exclusive act of faith where we lay aside the normal things that bring us security. And again, those things aren't bad, but we just say, I don't trust in them to be what I need. I come to God and I trust in him alone. I seek my refuge in him because he is the source of life and goodness and comfort for me. Psalm 16 says worshiping God is an exclusive act. It also teaches us that worshiping God means that we get more of God as our inheritance, not stuff. So as the psalm goes on, he teaches us, hey, it's not that we get stuff when we trust in God. It's that we get more of God. Our psalmist pulls from the language of Joshua, where the land is settled. And if you remember the, the book of Joshua, the, the Israelites go into the land finally after all their wandering. And after they conquer it, then the, the tribes are apportioned out areas. So you've got land that's apportioned out to the tribes and then to the clans down to the individuals. And it's a lot of that language that our psalmist takes and says, hey, this is not really about the land in the end. This is ultimately about God. Is that, hey, the land is not what gives us life. 
It's what God does for us. And so in verses 5 through 6, we see the words portion, cup, future, boundary lines, inheritance. All words normally used to describe worldly stuff and treasures. And he says, no, no, no. God is our boundary line. God is our portion. God is our blessing. God is our cup. God is our inheritance. And so the question is, like, when you become a Christian, what do you get? What do I get if I join this members-only club? And for some, some pastors will go over here and tell you it's health, wealth, and babies. But everybody with gray hair, hair in here will tell you it ain't health, wealth, and babies. Because you know faithful people who aren't healthy, not because of choices they made. You know faithful people who do not have the riches that they wish for. And you know deeply faithful people for whatever reasons wombs haven't opened. Deeply faithful people. What you get when you become a Christian is not health, wealth, and babies. No, you get God. That's what you get. When you become a Christian, the primary thing that you receive is God. You get the, the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and the Holy Spirit given to you as a security and a down payment for a future day when you will be with God face to face. The center of our faith is not a thing. It's not a book. It's not a reward. It's a person. And the psalmist understood this. It's the triune God. That is what we get when we become a Christian. And our psalmist rightfully praises God that this is the case. So if you have the right view of God and you say, what do I get when I become a Christian? The greatest thing God can give you is himself. The greatest thing God can give you is he said, I, I came to you. You ran from me. I came to you. You keep running. I keep jogging. Trust me, I'm faster than you. I'm infinite. And then I went to the cross for you. You all backed away, but I stayed on the cross for you. I could have called down angel armies, but I stayed on that cross. And then I rose again for you. And then I came and gave my spirit to you, which is something we proclaim every week, that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and he comes into our life. And you have the right view of God, then you would say, the greatest thing I could get is God. And wouldn't you know, that's the thing that God gives us all. Now, do we get more than that? Of course we do. Of course there's bountiful blessings being in God. But the biggest and most beautiful gift that God could give us is nothing short of himself. And don't you know that's the primary thing that our psalmist teaches us. Why we can trust in God is because he doesn't withhold any good thing from us, even himself. Which means, whether you own your home or you don't, you have wealth or you have debt or you have little or you have a lot, you can still declare with the rest of us that your boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places because you have God. You belong to him and he belongs to you. He lets you say that he belongs to you. Wild. And yet that is the kind of God that we have. There is no greater inheritance. And it's beautiful. We get more than that. We, we get more than that. There are so many beautiful gifts. The gifts of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. All these incredible gifts from God. But the greatest, the psalmist reminds us, is that we get him. And for that, we should praise and worship God. Psalm 16 teaches us that what we get is God. And then finally, Psalm 16 teaches us that praising God and trusting in God is a whole body experience of joy. Worshiping and trusting and praising God is a whole body experience of joy. Verse 9 tells us that the heart was glad. And then it says the whole being rejoices. That whole being there is actually the word kidney. And most scholars are like, odd. I don't know why they chose the kidney, but they did. And then it says the body rests securely. Can you imagine just 
Take a moment. How many of us need our body to rest securely so many times throughout the week? And this is what the psalmist says. When you have trust in God, your heart, your whole being, and your body rest securely. When you take a moment, I want you to go all the way back. When I ask you to imagine the person you delight in, they delight in you. I want you to think of that person again. I'm going to set up this video for you. This is my example. I did this whole exercise for myself last Friday, I snuck up to Oklahoma to see my babies. If you haven't figured it out yet, the only purpose God created me for was to be an aunt. I'm convinced of it. When I die, I put on my headstone, Aunt Nika. That's it. And when the kids were young, we never told them when I was coming to town. It just made for really sweet, like, they just get so excited, jump in your eyes. So fun. So fun. So I strategically said, let's not tell them. This was a little bit vulnerable for me because I'm like, what if they were like, hey. But they didn't. And I, I strategically recorded their response because I want you to see what my picture of joy looks like. And so you're going to see my oldest niece and my nephew right as I open the door and they don't know that I'm coming. And so this is what joy is for me. Hi, <laughs> 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 <My> guys. Look, <laughs> it's the pulpit. <laughs> Hi. I looked through my window. Oh my God. Hi, Bubba. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. Where's little sis? AJ's always late to the party. Little sis is always. And when she finally came around the corner, she grabbed Alex and held on for like 20 minutes. I swear. I was like, I'm your actual aunt. That's. That is an embodiment of joy. It is, it is my greatest privilege in life to be their aunt. And the fact that they still get so excited to see me is such a gift. Oh, it's such a gift. And it was physical. Like, it, there's physical happiness. Like, one of the ways that I know I am at peace when I'm an aunt is um, the Hawkins have a home just outside the city. And last year and this year, I take my babies out there, and it's the best sleep I get. And there's five of us in one room, inexplicably. There's 4,000 rooms in their house. And we all choose to sleep in one room. And I don't have kids. I don't sleep with people. And I sleep on a tiny little sliver of a bed because they get the queens because, you know, aunthood. And it's the deepest, most restorative sleep I get because I'm at peace. I'm happy. I'm so happy when I'm with them. That's how it's supposed to be with God. In God's presence is supposed to be the fullness of joy. That running and smiling and jumping. Like, like what you can't see is the other camera where my smile is this big and I'm just holding them and kissing them and telling them I love them. That's what it's supposed to be like with God. I was talking to Linnell Zanstra the other day. That came out weird, Linnell Zanstra. And I was talking to her about discipleship and she said, you have to read this book. I said, okay, great. And so it's the other half of church. And the thing is, anytime books talk about half the church, they're usually talking about women. So I said to her, is this about the role of women? She said, no, 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 it's about brain science, which I should have known. Because if you hung out with Linnell, you've, you've heard about the amygdala, okay? How many of y'all have heard about the amygdala from Linnell? Yeah. And she said, you need, if you're going to understand discipleship, you need to read this book. And she was so right. The, the author was, a, there's two authors. One's a neuroscientist um, and one's a pastor. And the pastor was a pastor of discipleship. And he's like, you know, I kept experiencing the same thing. I'm, I'm creating all these programs to help transform people. And they just were stuck. 
Like, like people would attend church for years. They'd be in Bible study. They'd be in groups. They'd read their Bible. They'd attend worship. They'd pray. But they did not experience life transformation. And he himself had an, a life-altering decision to follow Christ in college and was on fire for the Lord. Does this not sound like so many people we see? I was on fire for the Lord. In the first few years I became a believer, it was so fruitful. And then something happened. And it's just, I feel... Like, I'm just going through the motions, and if I'm honest, like, I know, I know these things. I don't know these things. And so I started reading this book, and I was like, oh, they are diagnosing a problem so well that I experience as, as I attempt to minister, and even in my own life in different seasons. And so they diagnose the problem, hey, we're stuck, and then they say, okay, here's the solution. And I didn't know to, what to expect, like, what the solution would be, but I did not expect for them to say the first thing that is causing us to not grow is we lack joy. And they spend a great deal of this book just talking about the necessity for joy. Because joy is a key ingredient for growth. Because if you don't feel safe and loved, and you don't feel like you belong, if you don't feel like this is your place, you cannot grow. And I was shocked. And so they talk about this is what joy, they said this in all their research, this is what they discovered about joy. One, it's primarily transmitted through the face and especially the eyes. Like joy requires that you see each other face to face and especially the eyes and secondarily through voice. And they said what's interesting is screens do not get the same result. How many of y'all remember Zooming during COVID? And we did that to keep up and we'd get done and we're like, I feel worse, right? And it was like, Bleh. and then you were like, when do you politely just bow out of your family Zoom? You're like, oh no, I have to be somewhere. And they know you don't because you're locked down. <laughs> like, right? Number one, it's primarily transmitted through the face and the voice. Number two, joy is relational. So you can't have joy on your own. You can have happiness. You can have other things, but joy is relational. It's what we feel when we are with someone who is happy to be with us. It does not exist outside of relationship. It's transmitted through the face. It's in relationship. And the third thing, which should be obvious if you read through your Bible, is joy is incredibly important to God. It shows up all over the scriptures. And wouldn't you know, this idea that it's transmitted through the face, it wasn't unique to these researchers because that verse 11 where it says there is fullness of joy in the presence of God, that is not what the Hebrew idiom is. The Hebrew idiom is abundant of joy is with your face. The actually Hebrew is, hey, in front of your face is where there's abundance of joy. Standing in front of God's face is abundance of joy. I could keep going on. The ancient Israelites clearly understand this. Number six, 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. Psalm 87, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine on us that we might be seen. Psalm 89, 15, how blessed are the people who worship you. O Lord, they experience your favor. That they experience your favor line is in the light of your face they walk. Psalm 27, God tells David, David, seek my face. And David says, Lord, I will seek your face. Oh, that we would seek his face. And I think so many times we don't seek his face because what we think is going to be looking back at us is not going to be a kind, loving face that delights in you. You think he's going to have his back turned or his arms crossed or he's scowling or he looks disappointed or he's uninterested. And that's just not who God is. Oh, that we would trust that when we run to his face, like what is looking back at us is a face that deeply loves what his hands have made. I've never met a love like this, is what it should feel like. And it's not y'all's fault. 
the reality is, is in many church services in the West, only our minds are engaged in worship. Only our minds. We think if we can change your mind, we can change your life. But we, we have all the research that says it's not true. And the example I always give is every girl knows, do not get on the back of the motorcycle with that guy in the leather jacket. Get on the back of that motorcycle with the leather jacket. And depending on where you're at, you don't know which one's going to win that day. And if you think you're only discipling your mind and not your heart and your affections and your body, you're going to be on the back of a motorcycle someday. And in church services, we fail to engage the whole body. And so we end up making smarter people about the Bible and about God. And praise God. Look, I'm the resident theologian. I would love for y'all to pass some theology tests. Like, I'll show off. And if you're like, yeah, but my life's not changed, I'll be like, don't tell them that. We'll deal with that later. Right? But, but the reality is, I, I don't actually want that. I don't want you to just grow smarter in your intellect, but your heart longs to run from God. Because you're worried about what you'll find if you stand before his face. So yeah, we know, we trust God. But we're not so sure in our guts and our hearts. And we wonder why. And the reason why we don't is because we lack joy. It's almost like Psalm 16 actually has to be inverted for it to be effective. This is how, I I think the psalm is, is right to put it this way, but this is what I would say is actually if you want cause and effect, you actually have to start at the end. I'm gonna stand before the face of God and see that it shines upon me. It delights in me, it loves me. And because it loves me, then the greatest gift I can receive is God because I know that he loves me. And because of that, that's all I want. Therefore, I have supreme confidence in him. That's actually how it works. If you think you're going to start with, I trust God, I don't really like God, but I trust God, and therefore he's all I need. I mean, I want other things, but he's all I need, and I'm supposed to feel joy. That will never work. But if you say, oh, every time I get in front of God, I experience the presence of his face that delights in me, and it brings joy to my life, and therefore all I want in this life is God and every other good gift he wants to give to me, and therefore I trust him. That's actually how Psalm 16 works. So we're going to be woo-woo for one more minute and close your eyes again. And now I want you to imagine God, however you imagine God. Maybe he's in the clouds. Maybe it's an image of the scripture. Maybe he's a lion. Maybe he's a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. However you imagine God. Now I want you to take a moment and look at God and imagine that he really, really loves you. And he's really, really happy about you imagining him. And he really, really wants to hear from you. And he really, really looks forward to his time in you. He is like an aunt running toward his favorite niece or nephew. He is like a grandparent stooping low to pick you up. He is like a beloved friend whose arms are out 30 feet away because they are so excited to embrace you. Open your eyes. That's who God is. Psalm 16 is a psalm of confidence. We can trust in God. We can. We can trust in God. But more than simply believing that intellectually, we need to be able to say with our whole bodies, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My body rests securely before God. And the path to that is through joy. And so I want to invite you all this week to spend some time with God for no other reason than for you to reflect upon how much he delights in you. And you might be surprised, but when you start to reflect upon how much God delights in you, it changes just how much confidence you have in him. Start with joy. Work your way to trust. 
We're going to end with a fun fact. There is the oldest piece of Old Testament scripture that we still have preserved. Uh, it's called the um, Ketef Hinnom scroll. And scroll is kind of a misleading word because it's actually just a piece of silver. It's like an amulet. They found it. It's about 600 BC. Oldest piece of scripture we have. It's the most important biblical discovery outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very, very important. And there's just a little bit of Hebrew on it. So the oldest piece of scripture God has preserved for all of humanity is on this amulet. The oldest piece of scripture God has for us that he wants us to say, this is the thing I want y'all to dig out of the ground. This is what's on it. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord protect you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the oldest piece of scripture God wanted to preserve for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for the gift of your scripture that reminds us what it looks like to be in your presence. Would you change us? Would you remind us that you take joy in us, you delight in us, you love us. And it is so hard to remember that and to feel that and experience that so would you go before us and give us those reminders this week and let that joy change us to be better worshipers of you and better lovers of you and better lovers of ourselves and our neighbors we ask all of this in the name of the father son and spirit amen